On the night of November 16, 1812, a bright moon reflected off the swampy waters of Louisiana's little Lake Barataria. The glow cast ominous shadows throughout the swamp, which made Lieutenant Andrew Holmes nervous. Holmes was an officer in the U.S. Army's 24th Infantry. But tonight he wondered if he'd accidentally joined the Navy. Holmes was sitting in the bow of a small sailboat, leading a platoon of soldiers across the waters. They were keeping a sharp eye out for an approaching pirate convoy. Holmes's mission was to stop the widespread smuggling of illegal goods taking place around New Orleans. Tonight, they were after stolen cinnamon, among other things. Holmes knew if they cornered the smugglers, they would put up a fight. After all, cinnamon was expensive. Just a few minutes later, a group of dim shadows emerged from the swamp. It was the convoy packed into a flotilla of big rowboats. Holmes gave the order to chase them down. The smugglers spotted the soldiers and rowed for the nearest shoreline. Holmes could see men dumping cargo from their boats and then jumping overboard themselves. One of the smuggler boats broke off trying to escape in the dark bayou. Holmes ordered his men to fire. A sharp cry echoed across the lake, and one of the smugglers fell dead. The rest of the pirates quickly gave up. They didn't have a death wish. The leader of the smugglers, a well-dressed man with excellent posture, stood ahead of his men as the soldiers approached. A startled Holmes stopped cold as he recognized the leader. It was the gentleman pirate Jean Lafitte himself. And little did either man know that the two of them would soon be joining forces. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. This season, we've been looking at the unique democratic dictatorships that flourished during the golden age of piracy. Today, we'll meet Jean Lafitte, the pirate who went to war against and then alongside the United States. Known as a gentleman in New Orleans society, Lafitte is unlike most of the other pirates discussed this season. Lafitte didn't just rule a ship or crew, but ran an entire smuggling empire. His reign was exclusively over the Gulf Coast of Louisiana and the region around New Orleans. This week, we'll explore the mystery surrounding Jean Lafitte's early years and why so much of his life and career are a matter of contention. Then we'll dive into what we do know for sure about Lafitte, the so-called gentleman pirate, including the development of his Louisiana smuggling network. Next week, we'll follow Lafitte as he's caught in the middle of a war between England and the young United States. We'll also investigate some of the mysterious possibilities surrounding his disappearance in the Gulf of Mexico. We'll make our rendezvous coming up. Jean Lafitte's story is more of a myth than a concrete biography. Most of the events of his life have been either embellished or skimmed over, depending on the different retellings. Some of his words and actions are well-documented, while others are nothing more than hearsay. This casts doubt on any story about Lafitte's origins, including ours. So before we dive into what we know about Jean Lafitte, 
we're going to flip the script and investigate why the legend of the last pirate king is so contentious. The dispute over Lafitte's life began in the 20th century. In the 1950s, a man named John Laughlin emerged with a manuscript that ran several hundred pages long, all in French. He claimed it was the autobiographical journal of his great-grandfather, the pirate Jean Lafitte. Over the next few decades, different handwriting experts and historians examined the document and established that the paper itself was of the proper time period. However, the facts laid out in the alleged journal contradicted much of the known history about Lafitte, even some information that was well-documented elsewhere. The debate was never truly settled. Most scholars and historians fall into two camps. Lafitte's journal is either a skillful forgery, or it is not. In his book, Patriotic Fire, Winston Groom put some stock in the journal, while historian William Davis casts serious doubt on the manuscript and relies on other archival documents for his research. We'll use both authors' works to tell the story of Lafitte's adventures. If an event or fact is particularly contentious, we'll examine any alternative possibilities. But before we can get into Lafitte's incredible career, we need to explore his uncertain origins. Like many pirates, Lafitte's childhood is shrouded in mystery. Even his birth date and hometown are likely guesses. Davis posits that Jean was born in the small French village of Pouillac around 1782. Meanwhile, Groom says he was born in the French colony of Saint-Domingue, today known as Haiti. Regardless, most agree he spent at least part of his childhood in Saint-Domingue. His father was a tradesman and merchant, and it's likely his work and the political tensions in France brought the Lafitte family to the Caribbean. Jean grew up in the shadow of several older brothers. However, one of them came to be his partner in crime. In fact, Jean Lafitte may not even have been a pirate if it weren't for his brother, Pierre. Pierre, who was about three years older than Jean, served as a guiding figure for his younger brother. They had very different but complementary personalities. The brothers were both tall and handsome, with light hair and piercing eyes, though Pierre's were slightly crossed. Pierre was also a bit rough around the edges, less refined in his mannerisms and language. However, Jean Lafitte was a consummate gentleman. He dressed with elegance and groomed himself with style, including very long sideburns. Jean walked with an air of confidence and was an excellent conversationalist. One of his friends said, Lafitte would stand and talk about any serious matter for hours. He was tall and finely formed. His manners were highly polished, and one who did not know him would have suspected him for being anything but a pirate. Jean's smooth-talking had social benefits, too. He found lovers easily and made friends even more easily. His traits balanced out Pierre's, and the brothers could quickly become popular in any community. By the time they were young men, their bond was unbreakable. This strong childhood relationship set the groundwork for their future business ventures, including their seafaring escapades. After childhood, the next record we have of the brothers appears in March 1803. That month, Pierre bought a city lot in New Orleans to help start a trading business. This came just a month before the city joined the United States via the Louisiana Purchase. 
But the first hint of Jean Lafitte's presence in Louisiana didn't come until a year later in April 1804. And by then, he was already a pirate captain. Or rather, the next best thing, a privateer. At the dawn of the 19th century, after nearly 200 years of plunder, the golden age of piracy was ending in the Caribbean. The decline had nothing to do with a shortage of willing pirates. Rather, it was because anti-pirate policies were increasing while a form of legal piracy was becoming more widely available. This was, once again, thanks to an explosion of privateering. England, Spain, France, and now the nascent United States were battling for island territories in the region, and the monarchies handed out privateering commissions like they were candy. As Davis puts it, after 1800, piracy was almost unnecessary, for any men so disposed could easily legitimize their calling by taking letters of mark. As we discussed in previous episodes, these letters of mark were essentially permission slips for legal piracy. Captains and crews could raid enemy vessels and keep their spoils, all under the legal flag of a European power. Of course, which nations were considered enemies changed often, which created more opportunities for loot. By the early 1800s, the turbulence in Europe meant that the Gulf of Mexico was teeming with privateers, and young Jean Lafitte was one of the most successful. He likely went to sea as a teenager or even younger. It's also possible that after Pierre left for Louisiana, Jean went to find his own fortune and joined a privateer crew in the Caribbean. Whatever the exact timeline, Lafitte soon became a skilled sailor. Like Henry Every and Blackbeard before him, Lafitte's early years provided him with the skills and charisma to lead. With his upstanding demeanor and comfort with multiple languages, he rose quickly to command. By the time he was in his early 20s, he was already known as Captain Lafitte. And while Lafitte was plying the waters of the Gulf and Caribbean as a privateer, his brother Pierre was establishing a business in illicit trading. Pierre moved untaxed and pilfered goods to make huge profits. Many believe that the source of most of Pierre's goods was Jean's privateering raids, but that hasn't been proven. However, if this was the case, then the two would have been in close communication as they skirted the law. And that would explain the story of how Jean helped Pierre narrowly escape prison. Pierre was trading between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, about 75 miles up the Mississippi River. Over such a distance, the costs of transport and bribes were expensive. Pierre became deeply in debt to a man named Stephen Caraby. And by summer 1804, Caraby wanted his money. Caraby demanded a warrant for Pierre's arrest in New Orleans. By the summertime, the sheriff was hunting Pierre, but found no sign of him in the city. Little did they know, it was likely because Pierre's pirate brother had literally sailed in and saved the day. In late April of 1804, a French privateering ship called La Sœur Cherie docked in New Orleans. The captain claimed his ship was in distress and needed repairs. Unfortunately, this didn't explain the two captured boats the Cherie was towing behind her. The captain said they were Spanish ships and had been legally seized under his French letter of mark. The customs inspectors were suspicious, but they allowed the crew to disembark and unload their cargo. 
However, a closer inspection revealed that one of the captured ships wasn't actually Spanish, but American. Since the U.S. wasn't currently at war, this constituted piracy. By the beginning of August, the customs officials had enough proof to hold the Cherie and arrest her captain for piracy. But when they went down to the docks to seize the ship, it was gone. And as the sheriffs would soon realize, so was Pierre Lafitte. Historians have surmised that it is very possible that Pierre escaped on the Cherie. After all, the only record left behind about the Cherie was the name of its commander, Captain Lafitte. The Lafitte brothers had escaped New Orleans. More importantly, the gimmick with the Cherie gave Jean an idea. By claiming they needed repairs, the Lafittes could sail their ships up the Mississippi without being inspected immediately. Captain Lafitte had just realized the first step toward building a smuggling empire. Coming up, the Lafitte brothers establish a pirate colony. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from Parcast. When you think of a criminal, do you picture a killer, a gangster, a thief? I bet you didn't think it could be the little old lady down the street who murdered her tenants. Every Wednesday on my series, Female Criminals, meet the unlikeliest of felons, mothers, neighbors, and unsuspecting lovers with a penchant for dangerous behavior. Discover the psychology and motives behind their disturbing crimes and find out where their story stands today. But that's not all. Airing right now on Female Criminals is our special five-part look at the world's most infamous femme fatales, women who were deceptive and deadly, but not always the villain. Catch these episodes and more by following the Spotify original from Parcast, Female Criminals. New episodes premiere weekly. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. In 1804, Captain Jean Lafitte was in his early 20s and in the midst of a successful privateering career. But after smuggling his brother out of New Orleans, he discovered a tactful ploy to smuggle goods back into the city. A scheme that could make him and his brother rich beyond their wildest dreams. The scheme was simple. By claiming his ship was damaged, Lafitte could often avoid customs authorities' inspections until he was already docked. This gave him time to stealthily unload any illegal cargo, either on a nearby riverbank or sometimes brazenly on the wharf. The operation proved to work too well. Word spread, and soon every privateer and pirate in Louisiana was doing it. Making things worse, Louisiana's recent purchase by the United States meant that the territory was now crawling with customs agents. As privateering increased in the area, it became impossible to enter New Orleans with pirated vessels and cargo. Lafitte needed a new way to get his captured prizes unloaded safely and out of sight of the authorities. As he scoured the region for a new port, he ultimately landed on Barataria Bay, about 50 miles south of New Orleans. The waterway was sparsely inhabited and difficult to navigate. The only entrance into the bay was a narrow and treacherous strait between two barrier islands called Grand Terre and Grand Isle. Once inside the bay, the journey to New Orleans was a chain of shallow bayous and tributaries. It was a veritable maze of water and swampland where men and goods could disappear. 
It was exactly what Captain Jean Lafitte needed. The timing couldn't have been better for Lafitte. As always, Europe was at war with itself, which fueled privateering just off America's southern shore. Jean seized any vessels he wanted and smuggled the cargo into Barataria Bay. From there, Pierre moved the goods inland. Over the next few years, business boomed. Lafitte slowly but surely transformed Barataria into a literal smuggler's den. Unlike other pirates, Lafitte wasn't creating a reputation for himself by taking vessels personally with threats of violence. Instead, as his business grew, he was increasingly outsourcing the actual acts of piracy. The system was painfully simple. The privateer would take a ship, then sell it to Lafitte for a fraction of its value. The privateer got paid quickly and without any risk, and Lafitte didn't have to constantly worry about maintaining a ship or crew, or risking his own life and limb. It was a win-win for the privateers and the Lafittes, and the money rolled in. Unfortunately, their success attracted the attention of the nascent U.S. Congress. Pirates were constantly attacking American merchant ships behind the thin veil of privateering, especially along the Gulf Coast and the U.S. was getting tired of it. On March 1, 1807, the government passed a bill which demanded the Navy suppress piracy in the Gulf Coast. According to historian William Davis, this was largely symbolic, since Washington realized that the U.S. Navy was too small to be effectual. Part of the problem was that while the U.S. owned Louisiana, the swamplands of West Florida were mostly claimed by Spain or a series of small independent republics. The borders along much of the Gulf Coast were often in contention, creating a no-man's land where smugglers had free reign. Though there was a small influx of naval officers and government agents into Louisiana, Lafitte wasn't worried. He knew bureaucrats often got in their own way, and he knew that there were loopholes to be exploited in any legal system. After all, he had been operating as a so-called French privateer for years, all while engaging in piracy, and he had yet to face any consequences for it. In fact, not long after Congress announced their anti-smuggling initiative, the bureaucrats proved Lafitte correct and played right into his hands. Near the end of 1807 and beginning of 1808, the United States enacted two new laws that turned Lafitte's small smuggling operation into a veritable gold rush. The first was the Embargo Act, which was passed by Congress in December 1807. This act banned U.S. trade with foreign ports. Amid the turmoil in Europe, Britain and France had closed their ports to any nation who was not their ally, essentially a with-us-or-against-us trade policy. The U.S. wasn't willing to play ball with either country, so the government passed their own law banning English and French goods entirely. But instead of shaking the Europeans into reopening their ports, the embargo just crippled U.S. trade. There was still sky-high demand for foreign products, and without legal trade routes, the only way to get them was illegally. Smugglers could charge higher prices than ever before on their captured cargo. Within a few weeks of the Embargo Act, business was booming in Barataria. Managing the inventory became a full-time job for Lafitte. He rarely went to sea anymore. Instead, he oversaw the steady flow of other privateers looking to unload their own seized loot. He was more than just a captain now. 
he was the head of an enormous smuggling network. Unfortunately, the second law the U.S. Congress passed following the Embargo Act gave Lafitte new priority in what should be smuggled. Because while any stolen cargo had value in Barataria, the sad truth is that nothing made money faster than trading enslaved men and women. In 1808, the United States abolished the African slave trade. While slavery itself was still allowed, it was no longer legal to import enslaved individuals into the country. The goal was to encourage interstate trade of the enslaved and strengthen America's domestic economy since foreign trade was still under embargo. However, the new law didn't mean the slave trade actually stopped. Slave ships still sailed between Africa and the Americas, and any privateers who managed to seize them could smuggle the human cargo into the U.S. Thus, the new law simply encouraged privateers to become slave traders, and Jean and Pierre Lafitte were no exception. The Lafitte smuggling operation saw a wave of pirates bringing in captured cargoes of enslaved men and women. They became so busy that Pierre moved to New Orleans full-time to run that side of the business. Meanwhile, Jean continued to control the primary gateway to the market, Barataria Bay. The smuggler's den practically became a bazaar for New Orleans businesses. Legitimate merchants placed regular orders with the Lafittes for all kinds of smuggled goods, and despite their shady operations, the brothers were unabashedly welcome in New Orleans society. New Orleans was becoming a pirate's playground. It was only a matter of time before trouble erupted between the smugglers and the officials who were pledged to stop them. Fights broke out constantly between American sailors and pirate crews along the levees. The city felt like a wild west town where the police were heavily outnumbered and in some cases, even allies of the criminals. Part of the problem was that smugglers were actually supporting the economy. They were more than willing to pump their ill-gotten gains back into local businesses, especially at taverns. One of the naval officers summarized the phenomenon, saying, quote, As the pirates spent their money freely, the local authorities rather encouraged their presence. The district attorney evidently winked at piracies committed in our waters and at the open communication kept up between these pirates and the citizens of New Orleans. At the center of this turmoil was Jean Lafitte himself. The Lafitte's business had grown so quickly that by the fall of 1809, the brothers were the premier slave dealers in New Orleans. They were popular among the city's elite, to the point where respectable merchants practically boasted about buying their illicit goods. Historian William Davis writes that by the end of 1809, even the district attorney was referring customers to Captain Lafitte. Lafitte was practically a folk hero. Business was running smoothly, women and wine came to him in copious amounts, and he had no fear of the authorities. And then came the terrible month of October 1810. The stress of an exponentially increasing business was taking a toll on Pierre Lafitte. Though he was only around 40 years old, Sometime in October, he had a stroke. Pierre lost much of his mobility on his left side and suffered from constant spates of twitching and pain. For the next few months, he was either bedridden or severely immobilized. He largely disappeared from public engagements and his brother's business. For the first time in his life, 
Jean Lafitte was without the support of his older brother. And as if things couldn't get any worse, the U.S. government decided to make a move. On October 27th, likely just days after Pierre's stroke, President James Madison instructed the governor of Louisiana to annex West Florida to the United States and publicly condemned the smuggling along the Gulf Coast. The previous congressional mandate had been a warning, but now Madison was committing serious resources to the fight against the smugglers and their leader, Jean Lafitte. In one month, Lafitte lost his most trusted ally and gained a dangerous enemy. Coming up, America declares war on Jean Lafitte. Now back to the story. By the end of 1810, Captain Jean Lafitte's career was shifting. He was becoming less a pirate captain and more a smuggler king. Within a few years, his empire of pilfered cargo had grown to immense proportions. According to Winston Groom, there were nearly a thousand pirates and privateers residing in and around Barataria Bay, the epicenter of smuggling operations in Louisiana, and they were prolific. Estimates suggested that in the years since Lafitte had landed in the bay, the Baratarians had captured over a hundred ships. But now the U.S. government was hounding him. In October 1810, days after his brother suffered a stroke that took him out of business, Jean Lafitte learned that President Madison was ramping up a campaign against smuggling. Within the next few months, the U.S. had their sights on putting an end to Lafitte's primary business the illegal trade of enslaved men and women. There was immense fear of slave uprisings in the southern states, and every facet of the slave trade was drawing increased scrutiny. Lafitte's network was one of the primary suppliers of enslaved Africans to Louisiana. And after a particularly violent slave revolt in January 1811, a new naval commander was sent to New Orleans to sort it out. His name was Commodore Shaw, and he had a fleet of gunboats tasked with hunting down the privateers from Barataria. Unfortunately for Shaw, that was much easier said than done. The Navy vessels were too big to enter the shallow bay in Barataria and too slow to chase down the pirates' sleek riverboats. Worst of all, the swampland around New Orleans was a labyrinth that the smugglers knew like the back of their hands. In addition to the difficulty of simply finding Lafitte's supply routes, the people of Louisiana were going to side with Lafitte, not the U.S. Navy. Most of the 24,500 people living in New Orleans were French or Spanish. This Creole community had been there a long time before the Louisiana Purchase and was strongly aligned against their relatively new American governance. Lafitte's reputation had always been one of genteel bravado, he was admired and well-liked among the people. However, as the government took a firmer approach to piracy, it became clear that Lafitte being a gentleman would only take him so far. There was a simple truth to successful piracy that Blackbeard had learned almost a hundred years previously. Sometimes it was better to be feared than admired. In that regard, Lafitte's gentlemanly reputation would work against him. So he went with a different tactic, building firepower. With the government closing in, he knew the security of operations at Barataria would require guns and lots of them. So Lafitte came prepared and armed his ships. 
For much of the next year, Lafitte played a game of cat and mouse with the U.S. Navy and mostly won. Small skirmishes between the naval gunboats and smuggler vessels almost always ended in the pirates' escape. By the beginning of 1812, it became clear that Lafitte was harder to track down than Commander Shaw had anticipated. Adding insult to injury was the fact that Lafitte was still able to run his smuggling empire with impunity. And then, in June of 1812, Shaw found himself facing another obstacle. War broke out between England and the United States. Suddenly, the U.S. had more important things to worry about than hunting Jean Lafitte. Many of the naval vessels and soldiers sent to combat piracy were reassigned elsewhere. While Shaw's remaining gunboats were still playing tag in the swamps with Lafitte smugglers, there was little consequence in the courts if they were caught. In fact, in November 1812, Lafitte himself was captured in a nighttime raid in the bayou. However, Lafitte was then released until any formal charges were made, and of course, he had little intention of returning for his court date. And best of all, Lafitte soon had his brother back by his side. Near the end of 1812, Pierre's health was improving to the point where he was able to return to work. The timing was perfect. The war offered plenty of opportunities for business. For the Lafittes, this meant a huge surge in demand for not only enslaved individuals, but also luxury goods and raw materials. By the start of the new year, their operation was back to a well-oiled machine. In February 1813, Lafitte took command of a recently captured vessel called La Diligence. Since the expansion of Barataria Bay, Lafitte had stayed mostly in the swamps. It had been years since he'd been to sea. Lafitte missed the salt air and adventure of captaining a ship. He was ready to get back on a rolling deck. Unfortunately, Lafitte quickly discovered that his smuggling success meant that he could no longer be a captain. Legally, that is. Word soon got out that Lafitte was the registered captain of La Diligence. Since he was now directly linked to the ship, it put a huge target on his back if La Diligence was involved in any illegal trading in the future. The cover of plausible deniability was gone, and if he stayed on as captain, it could put his entire smuggling enterprise in jeopardy. Unwilling to put everything he'd built at risk, Lafitte sadly stepped down and entrusted La Diligence to another captain. But all was not lost. Lafitte may not have been able to take command as a captain anymore, but he was still running the show. Until now, the vessels operating out of Barataria had been independent privateer ships. Lafitte was running the show, but he didn't own any of the ships. But that could change. Lafitte decided he was going to buy them up and create his own pirate armada. Miraculously, this allowed him to keep his plausible deniability cover. Yes, he was the owner of the fleet, but if the ships were caught doing illegal trade, he could claim the captains went rogue. It was the perfect way to do legal and illegal work. So in the spring of 1813, he and Pierre bought and outfitted two privateer ships, arming them with over a dozen cannons and hundreds of muskets and small arms. Not long after, they added a third ship. By the end of May, Lafitte was the owner of the only privately owned pirate fleet in the Gulf of Mexico, 
Lafitte had come a long way from his early days of small-time privateering and smuggling. He'd moved off the water and joined his brother in building an illicit empire. And now he'd become a pirate admiral. With several ships under his control, he could directly command what and how the privateers hunted. Lafitte saw nothing but possibilities for expanding his smuggling kingdom from his throne at Barataria. Little did he know that within a year, Barataria would be in flames. Thanks for listening to Dictators. We'll be back next week with the thrilling conclusion to Jean Lafitte's story as he goes to war to save New Orleans. Among the many sources we used, we found The Pirate's Lafitte by William C. Davis extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Dictators was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and Joe Guerra, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Chelsea Wood. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. <laughs>